Well, good morning, Kingdom Vineyard, and thanks for tuning in to KVTV this week. I'll get started right away with our scripture reading, which is from Acts 23, verses 11 to 35. I'll read it for you now, and we pick up our story right from where Toby left off last week, Paul being arrested by the Romans. Verse 11, But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side, Paul's side, and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than forty who formed the plot. They came to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation, and we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the, young, one of the centurions to him and said, Lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you, since he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand and stepping aside began to inquire of him privately, What is it you have to report to me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to you to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them. For more than forty of them are lying in wait for him, who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him, and now they are ready and waiting for the, pro for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, Tell no one that you have notified me of these things. And he called to him two of the centurions and said, Get two hundred soldiers ready by the third hour of the night and to proceed to Caesarea with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen. They were also to provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter having this form. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix. Greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to them with troops and rescued him, having learned he was a Roman. And wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. But the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with them, him, they returned to the barracks. When they, these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. When he had read it, he asked from what province he was, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving order for him to be kept in Herod's Praetorium. Now, briefly, Paul has arrived in Jerusalem, has preached and was arrested. He stands before the crowd and preaches a sermon that leads nearly to another riot. Then he is taken into the custody of the Roman commander. He will remain in captivity for the rest of Acts and possibly for the rest of his life. The passage we have this morning reads in some ways like the plot to a spy thriller. Machinations, ploys, secret messages, a midnight rescue. Notable, perhaps, is that where in many such films the hero worries, Paul appears unconcerned, an attitude undoubtedly anchored in his belief in the word of Jesus. He knows he's going to Rome, and nothing will stop the promise of Jesus. 
Such faithfulness, such confidence in a film protagonist would appear strange and otherworldly to the camera. Now, I want to jump off from this passage to make two points today, both in some ways unrelated to one another. The first is to observe that opposition takes unanticipated forms. The other is to note that help comes from unanticipated places. And we'll conclude by thinking about what faithfulness looks like. So let's begin with the unanticipated opposition. Paul is in the situation he's in because he's offended his countrymen. And of all the reasons for them to be offended, the one that gets him is honestly a bit strange. They aren't troubled by the idea that they've killed him. They aren't worried about the changes to the law and the unveiling of God's new and expansive forgiveness. Instead, the thing that gets them is the Gentiles. In other words, new revelations from God are all well and good so long as they're for us. If they're for other people and they aren't promises of impending divine judgment, then that's going too far. The gospel is good news, of course, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Its priority is such that the original inheritors, the Jews, get a chance to eat first. That's the life of Jesus. Before the salvation buffet opens to the world, and that's Acts and the church. But it is important for us to recognize that this good news has two forms. One of the forms of the good news is the content of the gospel. This is the set of beliefs we have about Jesus, his work, God's kingdom, and our entry into that kingdom through faith, baptism, and a life lived according to God's plan. But there's a flip side to the gospel, and that's also the living community of people who now believe this stuff. A new transnational, transcultural, translinguistic body of people who find their life in God as little Christs, Christians, and whose new life in Christ demands a rethinking of every ethnicity, every family unit, every personal identity. Christ is now everything. Jew and Gentile becomes in some ways irrelevant. It looks like it's the second aspect of the gospel that sparks opposition. And it is an opposition running throughout Paul's life and ministry. In fact, it is an opposition sitting behind a commonly misread book verse in the book of Romans. Romans 1.16 says this. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, when I was growing up, the thing that Paul and we might be ashamed of is the business of sharing the gospel, of talking about Jesus in public, which is sometimes embarrassing, something you might be ashamed of. People who were bold in evangelism were the people who evidenced being not ashamed of the gospel, like people who wear Christian t-shirts and are publicly fans of Christian music and who attach little Christian fishes to the backs of their automobiles. Those people weren't ashamed of the gospel. But it turns out that's not what Paul is talking about at all. Paul is writing a letter to the Roman church, a largely Gentile church, and the letter to the Romans will go to great lengths to explain why it is that the Gentiles get to be part of the kingdom of God. In the architecture of Romans 1, the thing that Paul isn't ashamed of isn't the content of the gospel. He's not talking about the teachings and words of Jesus to the world. It's the other part of the gospel that Paul isn't ashamed of, the new living community of people. In other words, he's writing to the Romans and telling them that he's not ashamed of them. By extension, he isn't ashamed of us either, because we in our faith and commitment to Christ are what the gospel is all about. We will not make much sense of Paul and Paul's convictions in his letters if we don't realize that his willingness to suffer is, in a very real sense, a willingness to suffer for our sake, for the sake of our right to be part of this kingdom business. Now, to make matters worse, we don't always look so good. 
All it takes is a cursory look to the church in Corinth to see that their behavior, so very unlike Christ and the kingdom of God, was an embarrassment to Paul, not only as Paul, but inasmuch as their behavior impacted his reputation with the church at large. There was a lot at stake. But Paul never cut off his churches. In all their warts and blemishes and all their embarrassments and foibles, he stayed committed to them. This is a lesson I think we need to hear. Today, especially given what's in the news, we are likely as not to receive opposition to our faith because of the bad behavior of other Christians. An extremely current example will make this clear. As small as the sample may be relative to the scope of global Christianity, the groups of Christians who trenchantly insist on continuing to meet during this pandemic become the Christians we are associated with. You Christians, the fact this pandemic won't go away is, won't, won't go away is your fault. Unfortunately for us, this is an argument too simple and too easy for the world to make at our expense. Now, we can respond in a few ways. We can deny that those people are true Christians because true Christians like yours truly are staying home, are trying to encourage people, and are banging our pots at 8 p.m. for the NHS. Then we can point to other real Christians, people we want to be identified with, the Christian doctor in Wuhan who gave us life fighting the virus, other Christians on the front lines helping people practically in the midst of these difficulties. What I want to suggest is that if we are truly unashamed of the gospel, we will need to extend love towards those Christians who don't look like us. Let me put this another way, and then we'll move on. It's easy to love what's lovable to praise the Corey Ten Booms, the John Wimbers, and the William Wilberforces of the Christian life. We also think it really noble to love the outsiders, those people who are on the fringe of the faith and don't yet know the love of Jesus. Those people, they look good to love. They make us look good by loving them. But it is very difficult to love the not yet lovable, those who should know better, those who are our kin but don't act like it. But to be unashamed of the gospel is also to be committed to loving really difficult people, racists, Tories, unionists, climate deniers, and even your crazy Aunt Margaret and Uncle Phil into a deeper life with Jesus. Now, the second point I want to make this morning is to note how help comes from unanticipated places, in some ways unrelated to the previous point. By all appearances, Paul is alone and on his own at, the moment, at this moment in the text. But before we know it, unanticipated help arrives. The most prominent help is the commander, the one who is, about, who is about to flog him, who is now defending him. Then, of course, we have Paul's nephew, who overhears the plot to kill Paul. I want to pause and note that Paul has a sister, that he grew up with at least one sibling. Imagine growing up with the Apostle Paul. Mom, Paul took my toy. And Mom says to Paul, Paul, did you do that? And Paul says, well, that which I did not want to do, I do. And that which I do not want to do, I did do. And Mom just throws her arms in the air and says, fine, you're both grounded. At the beginning, Paul is alone and looking friendless, but by the end of the story, Paul ends up a beneficiary of the machinery of empire. He's got two co co cohorts of soldiers, a troop of horses, he's got horses to ride on for travel, and a rather polite introduction from a terrified soldier who, it should be admitted, rather resembles a lowly officer riding to Darth Vader, and we all know how that can turn out. What is noteworthy for us in all this is that Paul shows himself a competent steward of invisible currencies. He spends his Roman citizenship at just the right time, spends the fear of the commander in the face of empire, spends his relational currency with his nephew for maximal effect. In each case, Paul knows just how to use the situation for the best possible advantage. In a real way, Paul models for us the economics of the kingdom of God. It's the same economics at play in the strange parable of the unjust steward in Luke 16. 
the steward is fired for being a bad manager and proceeds to forgive a series of the master's debts. The result is that the steward is ingratiated to the debtors, and to boot, he's done it by making the master look good. He's made the master's reputation swell. Recall Jesus' words at the end of that teaching. Jesus says, And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous mammon, so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. Become a competent steward of invisible currencies. How do we do this? I'm not sure you can plot ahead. I don't know that it's right to perform an asset check of your relationships, people you can exploit, situations you can take advantage of. But surely to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves means navigating a narrow line between craftiness and guilelessness, between planning ahead and going with the flow. If Paul is our model, it means doing a little of both. I can't imagine that Paul planned ahead to take advantage of his Roman citizenship in this way, but he was ready when the moment was right. Nor did he plot and ploy to get his nephew into the right place at the right time, but he acted decisively when the moment was ripe. In fact, what, what is more in evidence than plotting of any kind is decisive action. The difference is that Paul is uniquely creative and competent with these invisible currencies, and we should try to learn from him. So two points this morning, unanticipated opposition and unanticipated help. What, then, does faithfulness look like in situations like these? In the first place, faithfulness means committing to God's vision for the world. God revealed a plan to include the Gentiles into his kingdom. God revealed to Paul that he would be going to Rome. Paul saw that plan and saw God's plan for his life and committed to it no matter what. He committed to the plan in the face of all the opposition that was brought against him. He committed to that plan even when the people to whom he committed and who brought him embarrassment and shame, some members of the church, failed him. But it was never about his present circumstances. It was always about what God was doing. Paul kept his eyes in the right place. I can think of few more important words for us today that we need to commit to the plan of what God is doing and to see past and through our present circumstances into that divine sight. Faithfulness means living not according to the world's tune, but dancing and singing according to God's music. That's how I would like for us to be remembered when this pandemic lifts, as a people who were listening to God. Secondly, faithfulness means being obedient and creative with what you've got. Are you wealthy? Use your wealth. Are you influential? Use your influence. Are you skilled? Use your skill. Are you alone? Pray. Are you in a house full of people? Serve. Are you an essential worker? Work. Paul commits to God's vision of the world, and in the light of that commitment, all his resources get repurposed into kingdom service, many of them in unanticipated ways. From the vision of what God is doing flows fresh creativity if we're willing to be obedient. And I want to encourage you this morning to a fresh obedience. At this point, I'm going to turn things back over to Jim and Rachel for our closing prayer. But I pray that God will bless each of you during this unanticipated season with some unanticipated helps. Bless you all.